With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 102nd episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners everywhere in the world. I truly, sincerely appreciate you all in all of the now over 70 countries where you are located. And thank you for sending all your messages. Please keep them coming. I love hearing them and reading them, and I sincerely hope you're all doing well. My July Privacy Professor Tips message was published on July 28th. Sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. And they are free, as they always have been. So something that I see in the news every day are security incidents and privacy breaches caused by software programming errors, sloppy software coding practices, lack of sufficient testing, and many other related reasons. And this has been getting progressively worse for the past 40, 50 years as technology has been proliferating. And it seems like we lack having enough competent, diligent software engineers, coders, and programmers to address this long and increasing problem. You know, one case from long ago also exemplifies this decades-long problem of poor programming, and it also demonstrates how costly lack of secure coding is and has been for decades. So way back in 2003, there was a retailer, Victoria's Secret. I'm sure some of you have heard of Victoria's Secret. They have been selling for many years, you know, women's lingerie and fancy underwear and makeup and perfume and many other things. Well, Victoria's Secret was fined $50,000 in 2003 by the New York Attorney General for exposing online the orders, names, and addresses of more than 560 customers. I mean, it not only exposed the the names and customers, but think of the orders. 
so people could see what they ordered from them, the sizes and the types of underwear that they got. So how did they do this? Generally, their online application was constructed. It was programmed. It was coded to include the client account number within the URL. So all you had to do was to change your client number that you would see in the URL to a different number. And you would see then other clients' orders and everything that they'd been doing on that site. $50,000 today doesn't sound like much, but back in 2003, that was like a huge surprise. There had not been many fines or penalties done back then. And in fact, probably today they would be fined much, much more than just 50000 But this lack of secure coding continues today. Now, for the past several years, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or it's called CISA for short, They've published their top 25 most dangerous software weaknesses list. And that's something that I look at every year and a lot of other security folks do too. When looking at the list, it is clear that most, if not all, of those weaknesses are a result of poor coding practices, a lack of secure coding. Now, these software weaknesses are getting worse. They are not getting better as time goes on. Instead of just (laughs) venting more and more here, dear listeners, I thought it would be very instructive to have an expert, a true expert, pioneer, and current thought leader and practitioner for software security as my guest to go through some of these top 25 dangerous software weaknesses to point out the coding errors and the problems that made the software weak and dangerous. So I'm so happy to welcome back to my show today, my longtime friend and also one of the most brilliant computing and information security experts in the world, Dr. Mish Kabay, to discuss secure coding practices. So a little bit about Mish, first of all. Dr. Kabay has been writing code since he was 15 years old. And we're talking about actually writing it for organizations, not just, you know, for fun uh, in your bedroom, you know, playing uh, computer games. Mish was the program director of and created the Master of Science and Information Assurance at Norwich University, where I also had the honor and great privilege of working as one of his information um, adjunct, security adjunct professors in that program for nine and a half years. Dr. Kabay has been a member of the Information Systems Security Association Hall of Fame since 2004, and he has so much more information about him to see. I'm very excited to that Mish is the premier master expert professor for our new Privacy and Security Brainiacs Master Expert Online Education courses. So go out to uh, my show site and you can see a lot more about Dr. Kabay in the bio that he has there. Now, Mish, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Always a pleasure, Rebecca. Well, you know, this is such an important topic, and you and I have talked, 
you know, offline about this so often. In fact, you know, it's one of the, the passions, I think, of mine and yours as well to help people to create more secure code. And before we delve into the current top 25 most dangerous software practices of 2022, I want to provide our listeners with another example of how poor coding practices create problems and can be dangerous. So you told me when we were having a discussion about a software coding problem that you helped resolve in 1986. So I thought maybe you could describe that for our listeners. Yeah, uh, this was a pretty serious case where a software development company had a contract that stipulated that all transactions would take 10 seconds or less. Violation of that requirement would result in refunding the entire, at that time, $2 million of development costs plus three years of maintenance at $600,000 a year, meaning that the total penalty for violating the 10-second rule was $3.8 million in 1986 dollars. And believe me, that you can look up the change. That's more like 10, <laughs> roughly, uh, somewhere around 10 million in today's dollars. The um, client called me in a panic. It was just uh, absolutely desperate and said, help. So I analyzed the log files and discovered that there was a transaction taking not 10 seconds, but 43, pause, minutes. The employees were going to lunch. I'm not making this up. The employees went to lunch once they asked for the transaction to be completed. Well, what was this transaction? Turns out they were doing a, a, a search for records associated with a particular client. Unfortunately, <laughs> these people had failed to include an index in the data set of the database that they were searching, and the log files showed that the transaction was searching, reading 80,000 records. And back then, on a what was an HP 3000, a Hewlett Packard 3000 um, mini computer, well, we say mini, it, it was the size of roughly a, a Volkswagen bug. Yes. Anyway, they um, were spending 23 minutes in input output or IO uh. and 20 minutes on CPU, central processing unit execution time because they were reading 80,000 records. Well, I suggested a simple resolution that they install a an index and 3 days later I got word that the response time had dropped to 3 seconds. <laughs> they were no longer at risk of losing the equivalent of of 10 million dollars. So, a coding that. Yeah, a coding error. Yeah, it was a design error. A design error in coding. Yeah. Uh, went, you, they went from 43 minutes to three seconds? Correct. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> I right still there. Laugh. Well, it, it's funny, but yet it's sad. I mean, yeah. it's like, why Boy. didn't they catch that when they were testing? And then, hey, and then hey. I think you had a, a 1987 situation, didn't you? Well, there was something similar to your uh, case, mm. and that is that uh, um, it was reported to me that a uh, website had incorporated an unencrypted identification number in a generated URL. And it's just like the case you cited at the beginning. If mm -hmm. the user changed the number, instead of being told, you know, nonsense, that's not valid, they would access somebody else's record. And uh, one of the people who spoke to me said that... Um, he had deleted 20,000 records of a spammer's database. Oh. Uh, which is a violation of the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, because, of course, he didn't have permission to do that. Um, yeah. But it illustrates the weakness of using coded index values, ID values, in a URL. If you're going to do that, let's suppose you have oh, 100,000 uh, records. And so you're going to need five digits to identify the records. Don't put a five-digit number into a URL. Put a 20-digit encrypted value so that it becomes impractical for an attacker to cycle through, using a script, cycle yeah. through all of the numbers. Yes. Uh, so that must, now what year was that again? Um, that occurred, uh, as I recall, I believe it was uh, 1987 or 1988, something like that. So that was very early on then, in, before it was even um, the internet. That was in ARPANET or was that a completely no. different type of system? Uh, it was uh, It was a... Um, um, Actually, it, it, it did occur, it occurred on a, uh, a, a network. Okay. And, okay. Uh, and that's why it was accessible. Yes, okay. Yeah. Through the terminal. Well, let's get to our 25 top most dangerous because we aren't gonna get to all 25, obviously, because there's so many to get to now. The good thing is that you, Everything that's in those top 25, though, or what you cover in your secure coding class that you created. But I wanted to start going down from the, the most dangerous down just to get a few of them. So our listeners, many of them are uh, high school and college students and many are practitioners. They can kind of, you know, hear you maybe explain them. Because when you look at this list from CISA, oftentimes a lot of folks might not really understand what it means. So like when we look at the number one most dangerous software weakness of 2022 from CISA, it, what they identified as being the most is an out of bounds right, That's right. Um, problem. So for our listeners, a lot of them might not know what that even means. So what does that mean that makes it a dangerous 
coding software uh, practice? When we uh, consider how an operating system, that is what's running the computer, manages commands, we have to understand that it's going to be storing and retrieving data using random access memory. We just normally call it main memory. The, and then it will, the operating system will allow the, the program to uh, read and write data from disk. We used to say hard disk, now we just say disk because that could include uh, solid state disks as well. Those areas in memory are called buffers. The difficulty that arises with improper programming that, and, and the, the kind of error we call out-of-bounds writing is to write data outside what has been reserved for the program. If we extend information, reading or writing, but, but writing in this case, outside our predicted or demanded boundaries, we are at risk of interfering with other programs even sometimes the functioning of the operating system itself. If the uh, readers eventually go uh, take a good look at the description of CWE 787, the out of bounds write, they'll see the description is very simple. It says the software writes data past the end or before the beginning of the intended buffer. Well, sometimes if the program has been uh, programmed correctly in error detection, it may actually cause the program to crash. Mm. Some operating systems very correctly will forbid writing outside the reserved areas defined in the buffers. But unfortunately, sometimes what has been written enters the domain of some other process. That's very bad news because it means that some innocent program could even be part of the operating system will now have data corruption in an area of memory that it depends on. And that's, that's a real uh, difficulty. We, we must not allow buffer overflows. Um, Rebecca, you're familiar, I know, with the difference between an interpreter and a compiler. And for the listeners, the compiler generates what's called object code, which then gets executed by the operating system, usually something like a run command, whereas an interpreter is a program that is running as the user's code gets executed. The interpreter reads data that contains instructions and it stores information, including executable code, in buffers. I hope the, the, uh, the listeners are starting to, uh, as it were, shake in their boots at the thought that a program could write into an area 
that includes executable instructions? Yes. Means yes. that using buffer overflows, if if the program isn't stopping the uh, access to areas that are not authorized, it is actually possible for an attacker sometimes to write code that will end up being executed. The interpreter buffer has an area for data, but it also stores executable instructions in another part of the same buffer. Exceeding the limits of the data portion of the buffer by writing out of bounds means that we can perform classic attacks such as SQL injection. SQL um, is an abbreviation for the uh, structured query language that was basically invented back in the 1980s, 1970s and 80s. But SQL instructions are a programming language. They're just as powerful as anything else. So the attacker can insert SQL code into an answer that is responding to a question or some request for data by an interpreter. If the programmer hasn't limited the length of the input, let's say it's supposed to be an address, and the length will be a maximum of, I don't know, 25 characters. If the programmer allows a 50 character input into the address field, then it's possible for the 25 characters after the intended 25 to be stored after the data. That means that in a SQL injection attack, the attacker will write code knowing where to put it in the unchecked input buffer uh, that the user is seeing. And that code will end up in the later part of the buffer so that it will be executed by the SQL interpreter. Not good. Not it's good. Just, just appalling. That yes. Appalling well, great, that kind of attack. And I think, too, what would help the listeners a lot is to explain. I mean, this made it to the number one most dangerous. So this must mean that it has been exploited, that that particular uh, coding flaw has been exploited a lot. Do you have any it's, maybe real-life examples of how it has been exploited? Um, I, I don't have one on the top of my head, but I can invent one easily. Yes. Yeah, because um, SQL commands are a complete programming language, and they're oriented towards database access. Right away, listeners who have hair, unlike me, uh, will have hair starting to stand up on the tops of their heads because it means we can add data. So we could, for example, put forged information into a database that 
refers to monetary information in a bank, they can order actions. Let's continue with the bank. Supposing that the bank's program allowing users online access hasn't been programmed correctly, and it allows SQL injection, bounds overflows and, and buffer overflows, then a, a, an attacker could do the kind of thing that I mentioned before and that you did before, that is access information accounts from other users. The access might go way beyond simply reading data. Mm -hmm. Unauthorized access using the bounds violation to store SQL commands, the SQL injection attack, could allow, for example, a command to write a check, to send money, to transfer money between accounts. Those are examples of absolute disasters that recur according to the not only the CWE, but the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures Database, also run by MITRE, that one stores actual examples over and over of yes. cases where a specific company or user has allowed a particular kind of attack or has been subjected to a particular kind of attack. And in many cases, these attacks are the direct result of failing to follow what is taught, I don't understand it, which is taught in programming courses that refer to secure coding, which is why I created a course on secure coding. We absolutely need our programmers to be fully aware of the primary causes of system vulnerabilities. I mean, how on earth are we going yes. to improve if programmers are still winging it, unaware of the errors they are creating? And then the other yes. question. Well, is, wait, let's stop talk. there because we have to go to a break right now. <laughs> so sure right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but we'll come back and expand, continue this discussion I'm speaking today with Dr. Mish Kamei, international cybersecurity and software security expert and premier master expert for our new privacy and security Brainiacs education service. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, a privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about the show using my email. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from our sponsors. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs Visit privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Mish Kabe, international cybersecurity and software security expert and premier master expert for our new online privacy and security brainiacs uh, education service. And before we went to break, we were talking about what has been identified as the number one problem, the out-of-bounds right uh, for a software weakness. And Mish was describing what that was. So, Mish, for our listeners, they might be thinking, well, how can we tell how or if our program uh, has this problem in it? I mean, how can programmers know? What should they do for testing, for instance, to tell if they have this problem within their software that they've coded. Software quality assurance and testing is well established. And indeed, uh, as you know, Rebecca, that will be our second course, uh, software quality assurance and patch management. Uh, Software testing has long been established to have specific principles. In brief, and I, I can go into more detail, We have to emphasize boundary conditions when we're generating test instructions and data. We have to check all state transitions that we're uh, programming. We have to use test coverage monitors to make sure that every line of code is in fact being executed by our tests. We have to use seeding where we we deliberately insert incorrect data to make sure that the system will recognize them. 
So those are well established. But but yes. let's go back briefly to boundary conditions because that's relevant to the whole issue of out of bounds writing. We we need to input data below, at, and above every numerical limit that is supposed to be programmed into the system. Here's an example. Let's suppose that we require an input of a code, of, a, of an input identifier. And the identifier, for some reason, uh, is allowed to be between five characters long and, and ten characters long, let's suppose. Mm -hmm. It's going to be important that in our testing of the, of the code, that we input data that are four or three or two characters long, data at five, data at six and seven, data at 9 and 10, let's say that was the limit of 10, 11 and 12 and 100, we need to stress the system to be absolutely sure that the correct limitations are being placed on our input or on our output. So um, if we have code that is generating output, and there are conditions on the allowed results. Those conditions have to be tested. Yes. We can do that using debug routines, I'll explain. If the code cannot itself produce data, let's say, that are 100 characters long, when because the limit is, is 10, so the code itself doesn't do that, well, how are we going to uh, generate tests dynamically? We will use a dynamic debugger. The debugger program allows us to control execution, interrupt it anywhere we want, modify data in the buffers that are being generated and read by the program so that we can test. So. Our program generates a 10-character identifier. The debugger is set to interrupt execution immediately after generation of that code. The programmer, wanting to verify that everything's going to work, we're not going to get any bounds overflows, the uh, programmer will overwrite the data in the buffer and write in, let's say, a 100-character long uh, string, mm -hmm. and then resume execution. The hope is that the system won't just crash. That's not appropriate. We hope that the, we, we want the programmer to have designed uh, the code and written it so that that error will be recognized and reported intelligently. So instead of just crashing, with this unknown reason, leaving everyone going WTF, you know, what, yeah. what is going on here? The program will report and say invalid length on variable ID or whatever it is in line of code 13,654 because that will give us clear indication of what was wrong and where 
it was identified. Where did the where did the error get identified? Using that information, we can work backwards to make sure that the error doesn't occur by itself. Those are examples of proper secure coding to coordinate with system quality assurance. You, you need both, for sure. Oh, definitely. I, I think that is such a big problem right now, Mish, because I see discussions on LinkedIn and other online sites where um, oftentimes it's disturbing to me to see these discussions when they do ask, well, what do we need to do to test it? What you just described is seen as being um, a waste of time or what's the likelihood or that's not agile or, you know, it's, it's not something we should have to worry about that much because we're, we, if we look at the code and we know that the code is good by eyeballing it, we should be okay. I think that's one of the, I know, isn't that crazy that I'm seeing this and I'm seeing it online on these sites where they're supposed to be sharing how to securely code programs and they're they're actually talking about how to not securely code programs. There's some other aspects of uh, software quality assurance that are related to the problems we're discussing. One of them is that some people, like the ones you're describing, don't do what's called regression testing. Yes. Regression testing means test everything that has been verified before after every single change in the code. It is not acceptable just to check code module number 57 because you altered something in, in code segment 57. You have to check all 314 of the code segments to make sure that there's not an unexpected consequence of the change in that uh, modified segment. Another, another aspect of proper professional coding is that we need to use automated testing so that everything gets tested, that we're not relying on a thousand tests by a bored human being who, who's falling asleep at the keyboard. We have automated testing, checking every single aspect of the code and recording all deviations, uh, making sure that the code works. And I have a, a case study in that yes. other course uh, that, that demonstrates the value of automated testing. I had a client in 1988 in Ottawa, Canada. Of course, I can't tell the name. They were using manual testing of their uh, of their database program. And they had six people in the testing unit, and they did three test phases per product release, and they had 3,000 manual tests for each of the phase, and it took them 15 days for the testing. <laughs> yes. And it cost them $81,000 per release. That's $648,000 in today's money. But they were testing only 12.5% of the lines of code, 
which brings, um, before I finish that case, which reminds us that we absolutely need test coverage monitoring, and I'll describe that in a moment, to make sure that everything is, in fact, getting tested well. At my strong recommendation, they shifted to an automated testing tool. Think of it as like a framework for writing scripts that will test the application program. They still had the same number of people on the tests, but this time they were doing 24,000 tests in each of the three phases, and the test coverage indicated 100% test coverage, and it took them only five days instead of 15. Yes, the yes. The result was it cost them 27000 instead of 81000 $27,000 per release at 100% coverage, which was 4.2% of the cost of complete manual testing. Have I made the point, folks? It's a very good point. So that's a part of the quality assurance testing. So that'll be good. We'll definitely have to do another show specific on that. And that's certainly, that's your second class that you teach on that. Because I know our listeners are probably thinking, okay, well, how... You know, what tools do we have for automated testing? You cover that, too, in the class. You talk about that. Um, To be clear, though, you have to do both. I mean, as a developer, as a programmer, you're going to do manual testing while you're you're creating your your program. But so you, you have to do some manual in addition to the automated, correct? Correct. Yes. So just I, I want to make sure the listeners understand they can't just, you know, wipe their hands of it and walk on it. (laughs) They have to do both. So back to the... the, I'm sorry, just quickly, there is another principle um, that uh, listeners should think about, and that is the generally accepted concept that, of course, the programmers do their own testing. There's there's no way around that. You have to. Mm -hmm. But there is a formal software quality team that is separate from the programming team and doesn't even report to the head of programming. The software quality assurance team reports to the boss of that whole group. That's to avoid conflicts of interest. So just a quick note on the management aspect there. Well, and that is important because it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're, you know, it, the program's your baby if you're the, the programmer, right? So you're not going to see the the problems that might ha- exist in what you created, but you can have a more objective view of it from someone you don't work with or report to who can look at it more clearly and say, oh, you know what, here's something. And it could be something really obvious, too, that you just simply missed, right? Yeah, right. So, so um, I want to cover another example. Do you want to, I'm looking at our time here. I want to make sure we get into, I think you had another example. We've been giving you a, a range of examples. All of these examples apply to the 2022 uh, most dangerous software coding practices. So we're giving you some some examples from long ago just to show you that these problems have existed for a long time. And uh, Mish, I think you had a 1985 example of actually crashing a system, which is not a good thing. 
Well, it's a um, the whole the issue that I was thinking about as as an example of a dangerous error in coding is to create what is called a race condition. Think of, of sports cars and horses and so on, a race condition. This occurs when the programmer doesn't use an accepted f- sequence of what we call locking of resources and the reverse sequence of unlocking those resources. When there are multiple programs or processes accessing the same data, We typically program what's called a lock. People who have programmed or worked with databases will recognize that immediately. Uh, If you need to change something in two data sets, let's call them A and B, then normally you would lock A and you would lock B, and then you would make the changes uh, that you need in in whatever data sets are involved, uh, A or B or both, and then you would unlock B and you would unlock A. The reason is that if somebody else, some other user is accessing the same resources, if you have locked A and then you're going to lock B and they want to lock A and then lock B, they will be held in suspense. They'll, they'll be paused until you unlock the resources that you locked, and then they'll be able to progress. Well, what happens if people do it in the wrong order? Well, if, if, ba, if uh, Albert is running a program that has locked A and is going to lock B, but Bob is running a program that locks B and then tries to lock A, now we're in a problem because A has already been locked by Albert. B has been locked by Bob. Albert's program tries to lock B and hangs, waiting for that to be released. Unfortunately, Bob's process is now trying to lock A, which is locked, and is waiting for Albert's process to be released. So now they're both waiting for each other. Bob is waiting, Albert is waiting for Bob, and Bob is waiting for Albert. We call this a deadlock. The only solution is to terminate one of those processes to free the other one, but that's just to get things unlocked. The proper response is to ensure that the programmers have all agreed on the correct sequence of locking and the reverse sequence of locking, uh, of unlocking, so that nobody will ever be in a deadlock. That's an example of a dreadful problem because you end up with users completely unable to do any work until they terminate their processes. And often that requires a system administrator to go in and and terminate uh, the locked, deadlocked process. So that's an example of inappropriate programming because the coders are unaware of the standards and they haven't tested properly both of those problems. 
Well, and it's that points out the need to have standards to begin with, <laughs> right? And that all of the associated programmers are coordinating with each other. Um, because I think that's another problem that's kind of emerged in the last uh, decade or two, that there's all these different uh, code sets that are just kind of being used, you know, plugged into each other, but yet they may not be following the same standard. And so these types of problems occur. I yes, mean, yes. And, and indeed, it brings back into um, uh, visibility the concept of proper documentation within the code. Uh, that's another element of secure coding, that we have to ensure that the reasons behind specific sequences of code instructions have been documented. One of the best ways of doing that is inline code commenting, defining uh, you know defining variables that make sense. You don't use a variable called x three y pound sign five. You use a variable called name or yes. id or or something that that is easy to read. And then if there's something uh, unusual you write a comment in the code that says this section accomplishes the following uh, sequence of, of, uh, of operations or something like that so that it's clear. And then you have documentation outside the programs so that everyone can agree on the standards of the programming group. And that's where, for example, the locking sequences are defined in the system documentation and all the programmers have to read that and refer to the documentation as they are designing and implementing their code. And that's been a long time problem. <laughs> I mean, I know when I started, you know, as a systems engineer right after um, getting my degree, people just hated to do documentation and they hated to include documentation as part of their code because they just thought it was a waste of time, and and they're most of them are like, well, I'll remember what this is for. Or I can tell by looking at it, but I think that's a very dangerous, another dangerous uh, coding practice. Even though people don't view documentation as part of coding, you know yes. enough. Yes, indeed. Um, so, I mean, with regard then to these top twenty-five. Well, we talked about. You know, I think your example you gave um, kind of, you know, harkened back to that 1985. But what would you like to leave our listeners with here uh, today? I mean, what you've provided is also valuable for anyone who wants to do secure coding and then also quality assurance testing. But um, and those are going to be your two classes, but what are some, you know, final parting thoughts you would like to, to leave with our listeners for today? Rebecca, I think uh, many of the listeners may in fact be programmers. Uh, otherwise they might have no interest in, in the topic. Programmers, your career depends on your professionalism Designing and writing secure code is an essential component of your work. 
I have a particular case study for you. Um, just a quick note that when I was director of technical services at a large service bureau in the 1980s, uh, one of the programmers was causing crashes of the relational database management system that we had implemented. Uh, the RDBMS was, uh, had a 4GL, fourth generation language, so it allowed very easy commands for things like print. You know, you would say, here, print these variables in this order, and it would calculate the length of the of fields and it would organize them and print them and so on. Well, this guy was crashing the system. And of course, I had to go investigate. And I looked at what he was doing. He was writing, he wasn't using the language. He was writing scripts. We allowed scripts for special purposes in, in this 4GL. He was writing complicated scripts to emulate COBOL. And I asked him, oh, no. what are you doing? He said, whoa. That's the way we used to do it in COBOL. I'd say, yes, you keep doing that, and I will fire you. Yes. So we stopped. We no longer had crashes. So pay attention, programmers. Pay attention, and, you know, just there's so much more we could go into, but we're at the uh, towards the end of our time here. Hopefully, those of you listening, I know a lot of you, again, are in high school and college, and you're thinking about coding. A lot of you are have asked me through email, you know, if this would be a good, um, a good profession to switch to. You're in the middle or at the end of your career. Maybe you want a new career. So that's definitely something to think about. And uh, I hope you got a lot out of it today. Um, thank you, Mish, for, for coming on and talking about it. Of course, we could have talked for, for much, much longer. <laughs> so... <laughs> So today I've been speaking with Dr. Mish Kabay, international cybersecurity and software security expert and our premier master expert for our new privacy and security Brainiacs education service. So please send feedback on the show. Let us know if you have any suggestions. Um, and if you can't make our debut show each month, you can always listen to the recordings. And until our next show, ask those you do business business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them, including are they following secure coding practices and have they mitigated all 25 of those most dangerous secure uh, coding practices that are actually not secure. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.